epistle, 1 Peter. We're going to continue that today, uh, finishing up chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read to you from chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. We're going to focus our attention on uh, verses uh, 17 and following. That text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens uh, behind me this morning. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 13, or chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, Sarah, go ahead and put my notes up there. So let's do a quick review real quickly to understand. Uh, at the first part of this uh, chapter, Peter has laid out for us the phenomenal blessings that are ours in and through the work of Jesus Christ. He talks about us being elect. He talks about us being, even though our, our, the world looks at us as exiles, we are in fact the very attention of God in the world. Uh, we have a living hope in Jesus Christ, uh, and we have all of these blessings piled up upon us. And now in the second half of the chapter, he wants us to live in hope. That is, Jesus is our living hope. The world may be hard against us, but because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, we have hope. He wants us to live in holiness because uh, that we've been saved not just from uh, the punishment of our sins, but from the futile ways, the old ways of living, and our orientation of our life, our lifestyle. We talked about that last week, is reoriented. Then he says he wants us to live in fear and in love. Now, my guess is that uh, if I told you today that you have come to church for me to tell you to live your life in fear, you would be like, what? What are you talking about? I'm supposed to live in fear? I thought that was the exact opposite of the gospel. Live in fear? What are you talking about? I will not live in fear. You can't make me, right? I'm not going to live in fear. I'm above that, right? Uh, and so when we read these, we think, uh, I like hope, holiness, eh, all right? Fear, not at all. And love, I'm for love. I'm really for love. Uh, but that fear one is uh, really, you know, it's a bummer. So the first and the last of these probably sound attractive to us. 
uh, while the second and third probably uh, not so much, right? Now, the thing you have to understand is, is that when the, when the Bible talks about fear, and the kind of fear that we're going to talk about here is, is, is the kind of fear that uh, uh, it could be defined as reverence, you know, reverent living. Now, that's, that, that, that probably is like, okay, well, that takes the pressure off. I'm not under threat anymore. But all of a sudden, we begin to think, well, well reverence, I, you know, when was the last time I complimented someone on their reverence? You're quite reverent today, Jason. Thanks. It's encouraging to me, right? That just sounds weird, right? Who, who goes around saying, I like your reverence, right? Uh, we don't do that very much, right? So, so what, how, how are we, how are we to, to get at this? And how are we to put uh, these things together? And, and the, the, the thing about it is, this is, you know, hope, holiness, fear, and love all flow together here out of our new status in belonging to Jesus Christ. So what I want us to do today is to look at these last two. How does fear fit with hope? And how does fear fit with love? Because there's a, a definite connection uh, uh, b- between these things. They do, uh, they do fit very well together. So next slide, Sarah. Uh, so the answer to this has to do with what Peter says to us uh, in this text about the value of our redemption. Now, uh, Sarah, blank the screen for a second. I found myself this week being very frustrated about this because part of what Peter's argument is, in fact, the, the driving force of his argument is that the value of the sacrifice of Christ, the value of the atoning work of Jesus Christ is so immense, so immense, that it is what drives hope it is what drives fear, an appropriate fear. It is what drives holiness. And so the, the, the problem in that for someone in my circumstance is to have to tell you and convince you of something that is valuable that probably most often doesn't seem that tangible or available in your life, Right? That's why he says that this thing is so precious and, and, it's, and it's bought with something that is imperishable, that it is something of value that we cannot even begin to wrap our brains around about how valuable uh, the, our redemption is. And so, the, the, frankly, for most of us, we hear those words and we yawn or we distract ourselves and we don't have a, a, any kind of sense of the value of what has been done on our behalf. And because we don't have a sense of the value of what has been done on our behalf, then the, the issue of holiness or the issue of hope or the issue of, of, of reverence uh, is something that is very far from us. And so while I was thinking about this this week and trying to come up with a way uh, to think about this and to describe this, I, I thought of this text from the Old Testament, which is in many ways a mystifying te- text, but but gets at uh, the immense value of the sacrifice of Christ for us and how that seeing what Peter says here that we have been redeemed at great cost, where, where he says here that, um, uh, that we have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, or down later where he says... Uh, that we have been uh, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, 
I just want to show you a story about the life of David. David is getting ready to die uh, when we come to this story. And he is on his deathbed, and he is recounting the great love and the great acts of service that his friends, that his men, that, that people who have served him gave him throughout his life. And he is recalling that at, at the darkest point of David's life, before he was king, uh, he was in trouble. He was a fugitive. He lived in a cave. He hid out in a cave because the king of Israel, the king of, of, uh, uh, who, was, who was presently king, then Saul hated him and wanted to kill him. The Philistines who had invaded Israel and were dominating Israel, they hated him. They wanted to kill him. And so he is on the run, scared to death, all because God loved him. <laughs> all because God had said, I want you to be king. And so he's hiding out in this cave. And so this story is told and is recounted about David's darkest, bleakest, saddest uh, days in his life. And so he remembers what three men uh, of his uh, soldiers did. And he says, and three of the chief men went down and came about harvest time uh, to David at the cave of Adullam. That's the cave that he was he was uh, 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 living in. And when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And what this tells us is, if you could look on a map, is that Israel is almost cut in two by the Philistine advance, that this is a bleak time for David. It is an e even bleaker time for the nation, right? And so David was then in the stronghold. That's how they described the cave. And the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Now, you hear that and you just kind of move on because we think of Bethlehem as the place where Jesus was born. Well, when David thought of Bethlehem, he thought of home. That's his home. So David looks, so imagine where you grew up. And the place that you grew up, you'd love to go back there. You'd love to go back and see it, but you can't because people who are your enemies are ransacking your home and living in your house. It's a bleak time. And David said longingly, oh, that somebody would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. So David's sitting there in the cave. He's on the run for his life, and, he, and he's remembering how wonderful it was to drink water out of that well that he drank from when he was a little boy, when he was safe, when he had fun, when, when home was safe and secure and he could drink that water. Now, is that water better than any of the other water anywhere else he could get? He thinks it is. He remembers that. Uh, when you get a certain age like I am, you remember things about your childhood that it was the best ever, that it tasted the best, that it was the most beautiful and the most wonderful. The farm that I grew up on is now a subdivision. Really sad, terribly sad. And so a few years ago, we went by there to look at it, and there's this million-dollar house where our little farmhouse used to be. And all our sheds and all our barns and everything are torn down except for the one shed that I built when I was 17 to store our wood in for our wood stove. And so we went by there, and my dad looked at that, and he's like, you know, son, you should be really proud of that. 
whatever else you may not have accomplished in your life. <laughs> you should be really proud that that millionaire there thinks that shed you built is so great that he's kept it up in his backyard. I was like, thanks, Dad. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. So, uh, but I looked at that, and I thought, you know, and it's a junky shed. I mean, literally. Uh, I, I put it together from a, a shed that was in one of our hog lots and from uh, what was in one of our, our, our chicken, chicken lots, and so... It was, it was what a 17-year-old that doesn't know what he's doing would build. Uh, it's what it looked like. So, um, so David thinks, although I have to admit it was pretty beautiful. But, uh, so David's having the same response as he looks and he thinks about how great this well is, how wonderful that water would, would, would be. And so these three guys hear him say that, and they say, you know what, we love David. He's our man. He's discouraged, he's sad, he's nostalgic. You know what we're going to do? We're going to conduct a raid, and we're going to bust through the Philistine lines, and we're going to get him some water out of that well. And so, uh, uh, then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. Now, now, I, I don't know how many soldiers there were. I don't know how much they had to fight, but I do know that you can't draw water and fight at the same time. And so they put themselves in great danger, phenomenal danger, to be able to pull this off, just to get him some water, just to get him some water from the well that he used to drink from when he was a little boy. And so they bring him the water, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things uh, the, uh, the three mighty men did. So in David's mind, you know, you read this and you're like, what? I just, I almost killed myself and I had to kill other people to get you a stinking glass of water from the well that you loved so much as a kid. And you're pouring it out. What is wrong with you? Do you not value what I've done for you? When in fact, what David is saying is, I value what you did for me so much that I am not worthy. Only the Lord is worthy of such a sacrifice. And I offer it to him in honor and thanksgiving for the tremendous gift that you've given me, for the wonder that you would love me enough that you would risk your life, that you would put yourself in mortal danger just to get me a cup of water from my childhood well. And so David sees that, and it's a, he, he, in his mind, only the Lord was worthy of such a sacrifice because it represented the very lives, the very blood of his men who loved him so much. He is undone by the sacrifice, by the risk, by the love that these men have for him. Next slide. And so what Peter says here is, your ransom is so costly that only the Lord could pay it. So, so one of the things that we, we have to see about this is and one of the things that must grip our hearts, and let me just say something right, right here and now. If your heart has never been gripped by the worth and the value of the sacrifice that was made 
to redeem you. And if you don't have a sense right now of how powerful and profound that is, I have to say to you, you're in some danger. I have to say to you, you may never have come fully to grips with the nature of your need and the profound work that Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Peter mentions here, and he alludes to Psalm 34 almost a dozen times in this letter. And at the end of Psalm 34, it says, The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Listen, if, if you look at your life, and I think this happens to us all the time, is that the way that we think about uh, uh, redemption and the way that we think about our lives is we pay, pay lip service to the fact that we're loved. We pay lip service to the fact that we are recipients of grace and mercy. But I believe, and I know it's true, that we are tempted all the time to believe really in karma. That somehow or other, I am deserving in some way of the Lord's attention. That in some way or another, if I do enough good things or I've done the right things or I haven't complained or haven't lost my temper in a long time or I haven't done this or I haven't done that, God is somehow or other on the hook to, 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 to be gracious to me, to be merciful to me, to be loving to me. When nothing could be further from the truth, what he wants us to see is, is that you have been redeemed. And in the Bible, redeemed doesn't simply mean that you've been bought back. It doesn't mean simply that you've been saved. It doesn't mean simply that, that now you have the righteousness of Christ. What it means is, is that a debt has been paid for you, a debt that you owed, a debt that you accrued, a debt that was overwhelming and crushing to you that only Jesus could pay. When, um, when I was a kid uh, growing up, my mom smoked a pack and a half of cigarettes a day. I got to tell you, nobody loves cigarettes more than she did. And I have to say, when I used to watch her do it, I used to think, you know, and I still tempted to think this on really stressful days, I wish I smoked. Because it looks like it makes you feel so much better, you know? Do you ever... Uh, nobody thinks that's funny. I think that's hilarious. Can you, see, can you see the pastor walking around with a cigarette between his fingers? Really? Really? I, anyway, uh, I got blessed by her smoking because she smoked Bel Airs. Isn't that ironic that a cigarette could be called good air, right? <laughs> that's so awesome. Well, anyway... She smoked, and she smoked a lot. She quit cold turkey when I was 18. She'll be 86 in June, so you should quit. Anyway, she, uh, what used to happen back then is, with, the reason why I loved it is because she, if she bought a pack of cigarettes, there was a, there was a thing on the back of it, and it, was, it had a picture of Sir Walter Raleigh on it, and it was, good, it was a coupon. And then when she bought a carton of them, there was a whole long string of them. Well, we would collect those, and we would go to the Redemption Center, not a church, the Redemption Center, and we'd turn those things in, and I'd get like a baseball bat or a fishing rod or something like that because we would redeem the coupons for something good. Well, that's kind of the way we wrongly think about redemption is that I have something to trade. You go to the Redemption Center and you say, give me this merchandise 
I have nothing to give you. Someone else paid all of it, right? So, so what we have here is in this, in this picture of, of, of redemption is a debt that you, is so great that you can't pay it and, and someone who loved you enough when you weren't even interested in him paying that debt for you that he did. So what Peter says here is the Lamb of God, spotless and without blemish, is the only sacrifice that will do. Therefore, because we've been ransomed from a Christless eternity and a futile and vain past, we literally tremble and are awestruck by the price that has been paid, right? So, so that's where we get to the point of fear. When you see and when you understand the lavish grace, the tremendous cost, the unfathomable sacrifice that has been made for you, it causes you to be afraid because you think, oh, when I see that and when I understand the vastness of the love of God for me, when I see and I understand how undeserving I am, how clueless I am about it, and yet God focused his attention upon me and that the spotless lamb of God died for me, I cannot help but say, I dare not live as if that price was not paid. I tremble at the thought that the Father who loved me so much, who would give up so much for me, that I might act like it's not worth much. And I would rather place my hope and place my trust in lesser things, in perishable things, in things that appear to me to be of huge value, but in the end, pale, pale in comparison to the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I, I need to think about my life and interact with it in such a way that I, the, the value of the love of God, the value of the grace that is mine in Jesus Christ causes me to say, I dare not live as if that were not valuable, right? And so, so the thing that he wants us to understand is that our Father spent so much to, to redeem us when we had nothing, when we had less than nothing. And so because of that, we dare not act in a way that, that seems to indicate by our hearts that the value of the blood of Christ is small, very small. So, so the fear then that he talks about is manifest among us, in particular in time and space, not just in some uh, sense of reverence, but as we love one another because we have been loved with such a costly love. We hear and believe the word that is proclaimed to us, and we love, as Peter says here, sincerely, earnestly, and purely. This is what he, this is what he gets at us, that we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, and then he goes on to say, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living word of the living and abiding word of God. So what he, what he wants us to see is, listen, the way that I will know that you have a sense of reverence for the cost that has been paid for you is the way in which you will live with one another the way in which you'll be with one another. And you know, love is one of those words that is just dangerous to talk about because uh, we think of love as, uh, as nice. And I'm on record as saying nice is the worst word in the English language. I, I think nice is just so weak and pitiful and 
lacks so much of, you know, because Christians settle for nice instead of holy. Christians will settle for nice instead of love, right? And, and, and what he wants us to understand is he places this love that is to be manifest in our relationships with one another in the context of the Lamb of God who has been slain, the one without blemish or without spot. So, so what is this love? Well, I, I, this, I, I, this is I, I, my conviction today that true love is always tied to Christ. And I, I hope that causes you some angst and some um, maybe, even, maybe even anger to think about that because, because what, what you may say about that is I know lots of people who know nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and who love. So that's not true. Well, this is what I think. Uh, I think uh, that we only know love as human beings because we've been created in his image, and because in his common grace, he has enabled us occasionally, even unintentionally, to reflect true love in the way in which we love those who are unlovely. In fact, in fact, what I would say to you today is, is that whenever someone dies for someone else, whenever someone sacrifices for someone else, whenever someone uh, loves continually ongoing uh, in a way that w- with somebody who is ungrateful or difficult or whatever, whether they know Christ or not, they are bearing witness to the ultimate in love. Because what we, what we see about Jesus is, and what we see about his definition of love is that Jesus' love is magnified to us, not just because of its worth and value, but precisely because it is for the unlovely, right? True love is always tied to Christ. We read in the Bible, and this is love, not that we loved Christ, but that he loved us and gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for us. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. And I think one of the ways that we get love wrong is um, we think so often that what love, that, that, that we, we expect, we would never say this, never, but we expect If I love you, I'll get something back, right? Um, One of, well, the love that we're talking about here requires so much more than a sentiment of goodwill or an unconditional affirmation, you know, that simply I'm going to love you by telling you everything you do is okay and everything you do is just fine, when in fact, all that you're really sacrificing there maybe as a few of your principles, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Next slide, please, Sarah. So what it means is it means laying down our lives. It means bearing burdens. It means bearing with one another. It means loving the unlovely, the ungrateful, and the undeserving. One of the things that I mentioned at the nine o'clock service that I think is so hilarious about this is I know many of you love those books the, the five love languages. It maybe saved your marriage. I don't know. Maybe. That's good. Um, um, and, and you know what? Your spouse should live with you in an understanding way and love you in a, partic- in, in a way that is helpful to you. 
but you dare not ever put yourself in a position of, well, they did this for me, but that's not really my love language, so I don't receive it. That was nice, Jesus, for dying on the cross, but my love language is money in the bank. (laughs) That was nice, Jesus, that you did that for me, but my love language is, you know, having a good time, right? I won't receive it, right? So, so the fact is, the, the bottom line for us today as we, as we, as we think about this is, is that we know that we're, we're, we're loving and we know that it is happening to us, not because it's bitter, because we have to grit our teeth about it or whatever, but that we are precisely, it is a costly thing for us to, to lay down our lives, to bear the burdens of the people that we're in fellowship with, to bear with one another. Because if you're in fellowship with people for very long at all, you're going to have to bear with them because they're not perfect and they're going to disappoint you or they're going to have an irritating habit or, or you're going to have to forgive them for something. It means loving the unlovely, the ungrateful, and the undeserving, right? That's, Jesus is always attracting those kinds of people. He is always uh, 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 loving uh, th- those, those kinds of people. And so, so what he wants us to, to, to understand here is, is that the love that he's talking about uh, is not the thing that, looks, that, that, that seems to fulfill us, at least not on its face. It is something deeper and more profound than that that comes to us when we see and understand the profound love that is ours in Jesus Christ. Um, Recently, recently, uh, you know, the, one of the ways I've thought about this is about marriage. You know, um, I, as I've gotten older and, and I have the opportunity to marry people, one of the things that I am uh, so moved by, it, I just get, I, you know, even people that aren't related to me, when I sit here and I watch them come in, I, get, I, I tend to get emotional, and I have to say, all right, get a grip on yourself. You know, you're, you're the paid religious professional here. You're here to do a job, and stop being a blubbering mess, because I look at the bride, and I think, wow, look at that. Look how proud she is. Look at, <clears throat> look at, uh, look at how moved this groom is, uh, how beautiful she is, how he's never going to look this good again, and just on and on and on, and, and just how... What a, what, a, you know, what a picture of the love that Jesus has for his church. And then I get moved even more when I hear them promise, promise about the future. About the future. All about the future. All about the future. Um... Lord willing, my mom and dad will celebrate their 66th wedding anniversary this summer. 66. 66. That, 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 wedding, that, that marriage can retire on full Social Security benefits, right? <laughs> you know, if it were an entity, they, they could, that marriage could start drawing Social Security. I mean, I was thinking about it this week. I'm like, 66 years. They've only known each other for 77 years. My mom was smoking at nine when the first time my dad met her, by the way, but that's, that's another story. Um, but, you know, uh, they're not the same people they were at 19 and 20. 
And uh, they have challenges, a lot of challenges. Uh, and it's particularly challenging for my dad to love my mom. Not that she's mean or difficult or anything like that. She's, she's slipping. And I look at that and I think, you know, you need some help. You, you need to get a buffer between you and her. This is going to kill you. And he's like, nope. I love her. This is what I signed up for. We're going to do this. You know, there will come a day if, if, if she lives long enough where she won't remember him. And he's still going to love her. Right? Um, when you think about what we're talking about today is it's the immensity of that kind of love for us. And so when Peter says, look at what you were redeemed by, the cost of that redemption, you reflect the cost of that redemption in the way in which you sincerely and earnestly love one another. And so we'll be moved to do this when we see the costly nature of the love demonstrated in time and space by the Lamb of God for me. So one of the things that is so uh, important and so valuable for us uh, and that Jesus knows is true of us is we need um, tangible tokens because we're physical beings to know that we are loved and to know that we need uh, redeeming. And so listen now to these words of institution as they come to us uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's confess our sins together by using this prayer of confession that's printed uh, in the bulletin. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, forgive us. Instead of being separated from the world, we coddle our secret sins. Instead of hearing your word, we are shaped by every other voice, belief, and perspective. Instead of eagerly following you in your mission to the world, we choose sheltered and self-focused lives. Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. Our only hope is in your finished work. You lived the life we should have lived. You died the death we should have died. In our place, as our substitute to make atonement for our sins.
Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I was reminded this week of an old uh, lecture in the uh, old Sonship uh, curriculum where Rosemarie Miller was talking about looking out upon the people in their church and in their community and, and feeling cold. And she said, when, how will I ever love these people? And of course, uh, they were worshiping and they were having the Lord's Supper and she heard the crack of the bread and she thought Jesus was broken for me. Um, and that when that happened, she was moved not only with love for the one who loved her, but for those people, those difficult ones uh, with whom she was in fellowship. You see, that is the, the, one of the things that we uh, talk about when we come to the Lord's Supper is, uh, is that the acknowledgement that when we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes is that we needed a death that we needed someone to die for us to save our lives, that we needed someone to break through the enemy lines and to draw from the well of life and to give it to us that we might drink and live forever. Except our strong man broke through the lines and the cost of our drink was his death. When we come to the table of the Lord, we are acknowledging that fact we are acknowledging the fact that we are unworthy. And I, I know that that's probably a dangerous word, but the most loving thing I can tell you right now is you're unworthy. But you are not worthless. You have the greatest worth imaginable. Not only are you created in the image of God, though that image has been ruined, you have the blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb, the lamb of God shed for you so that you could have a life with him forever and ever and ever. Sometimes people say, I don't want to hear about sin. The problem with not hearing about sin is if we don't have a grip on how much the price was to redeem us, our love for one another and our love for Christ will burn cold. And so Peter has exhorted us today to see and to be renewed and to understand how great the price was for your redemption, for your ransom. And Jesus gives us today these tokens, this bread and this cup to remind us. The crucible of renewal, 
of joy and of love is at the intersection of the greatness of our sin and the overwhelming wave of the grace of God to us and the work of Jesus Christ. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have